0: I want to talk with you about a growing nationalist fervor within the Christian community which threatens to subvert the cause of Christ and bring great harm to the spiritual health of millions. The historic and biblical witness is that such Christian nationalism is heretical and must therefore be addressed on a pastoral level with great urgency. So I want to talk with you today about the heresy of christian nationalism the heresy of christian nationalism from the time of the apostles the temptation to deviate from the truth of the gospel in favor of man-made alternatives has remained ever present within the christian community the new testament passages are filled with reference to this temptation indeed to look to human power and resources instead of the living God has been a sinful pattern among God's people throughout redemptive history, including first samuel eight four through nine isaiah thirty one through three thirty one one isaiah thirty six verse nine, and a reference in psalm twenty verse seven now. In our own time, this propensity to ally with secular powers, in order to advance the church's mission, is once again on display. This nationalist fervency has among Christians is due primarily to the lack of pastoral care and sound teaching in the churches. After all, in the absence of a genuine Christian narrative the average believer will default to the narrative of the prevailing culture, which today includes this religious-based nationalism. Seldom before has it been so widely thought that America was founded as a Christian nation, which it was not. And when churches are given over to a business and entertainment model as well, staffed by professional hirelings, the wolves snatch and scatter the sheep. Therefore, it is essential that the churches recover the gospel narrative of the eschatological salvation which results in an eschatological community which stands apart from the prevailing culture and confesses Jesus Christ alone as Supreme Lord and Savior. Now let's look at a little history here. The Holy War, quote-unquote, began sometime in the 1970s, certainly since 1979, in the birth of Jerry Falwell's uh, so-called moral majority. The propensity of Christians since then to enlist the power of the state to legislate, regulate, and impose Christian morals upon the populace has grown. The so-called Christian right has evolved from a fringe movement beginning with figures like the aforementioned Jerry Falwell and others such as Pat Buchanan, Pat Robertson, and Phyllis Shafley and into the mainstream of Republican politics, finding growing support within the Christian community. In his address at the 1988 Republican Convention, for example, presidential candidate Pat Buchanan introduced a religious tone to the political discourse when he declared the party was engaged in a, quote, holy war, end quote. Today, the fear is again growing among Christian leaders that America is at risk, at risk of being overrun by a Marxist-based philosophy. And while there may be substance to this fear, European history has proven that when the church seeks safety by allying itself with the state, the end result is the loss of the gospel and the quenching of the power of the ministry of the Spirit, while the Church morphs into a chaplaincy to political power. So we are called, and this is a call, to guard the treasure of the Gospel. There is one Gospel, and it isn't a nationalist Gospel. Under the New Covenant, God no longer deals With nations. He deals with individuals and the community of his people. In these perilous times of societal and political upheaval, combined with the threat of heresy within the church, it is wise, therefore, for us to remind ourselves of the basis of our own Christian identity, purpose, and hope. So, the gospel we preach is that of God's eschatological salvation affected by the work of Christ and resulting in an eschatological community living out the life of the future in the power of the Spirit as we await the consummation. Now, that's a mouthful. So, let me say it again. The New Testament Gospel that we preach is that of God's eschatological salvation affected by the work of Christ and resulting in an eschatological community living out the life of the future in the power of the Spirit as we await the consummation. Now, let me explain. That the church is an eschatological community Means simply that its values and priorities are not drawn from this present evil age, but from the age to come. This also means that the gospel itself originates within the mind of God and not the skill of human thought and philosophy. The church, therefore, plays the role of a steward and not that of an innovator employing worldly devices. Christian nationalism represents a sharp departure from the biblical identity, purpose, and mission of the Church. But we fear that it has become normative, and that sense of normalcy, to be both a nationalist and a Christian, is growing. As did the Apostles, all Christians are to regard themselves, therefore, as stewards of the gospel of Christ. Social and political interests must be understood as temporal, and not the primary concern of the Church. The identity of the body of Christ is that of a people, reconciled by God through Christ, and a missionary people carrying forth the ministry of reconciliation as ambassadors of Christ. See 2 Corinthians 5, 18-21. Every Christian home, therefore, is an embassy of the kingdom of God in which individually and corporately the members are temples of the presence of the living God, living in the midst of pagan temples and practices. The people of God themselves exist as a, quote, chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. 1 Peter 2, 9-10 through when we say, therefore, that the Christian community is an eschatological community, we simply mean that the Church has been brought into existence by the saving work of God, whereby He has, in His Son, brought forward the eschatological end-time judgment into history at the cross and resurrection with the application and empowerment thereof occurring at the outpowering of the Spirit at Pentecost. Therefore, by the power of the Spirit, the Church now lives out the life of the future new creation in the present and under a new covenant and under the supreme lordship of our only Savior, Jesus Christ. The Christian community, therefore, does not draw its identity, its purpose, and its hope from the social, economic, or political activities of the kingdoms of this age, but from the kingdom of God, which is now present and active by the Spirit, though, of course, it is yet to be fully realized at the return of our Lord. This is one reason why Paul instructed Timothy to avoid civil entanglements, saying, quote, No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. 2 Timothy 2 4. The Christian's existence is lived out in accord with the values and the priorities of the kingdom of God, wherein his citizenship ultimately lies even while living in this parallel evil age which is quickly passing away. The Christian's primary purpose is to live as a minister of reconciliation, not division, advancing the kingdom of God through the gospel for which he or she is an ambassador by the power of the Spirit and not by the power of the state. There is simply nothing in the New Testament which commands the Christian to employ the power of the state to advance the priorities and values of the kingdom of God, and it is heresy to teach otherwise. But, since Constantine, in the change of 313 AD, the institutional church has allied itself with the state. The folly of which is readily apparent in the history of European Christendom. There, we discover that to employ the power of the state to force Christian conversion and values upon the populace actually brought spiritual darkness. And it will do so again if this current trend remains unchecked. Let's be clear. The attempt of the Church to create a Christian society by allying with the power of the state is, in fact, a rejection of the power of the Spirit. And ironically, the result on genuine morals and societal order are as one can only expect when the spirit of holiness is quenched. Now let me give you a biblical illustration from the book of Philippians. This temptation to place one's loyalty to the state above that of Christ and his kingdom was a challenge also for the early Christians in the Roman colony of Philippi. The citizens there were proud of their status as Roman citizens. It was the first Roman emperor, Caesar Augustus, who had granted Philippi the status of a Roman military colony, and thus its inhabitants' status as Roman citizens. At public events, theater, assemblies, and so on, great affection and honor was given, therefore, to the emperor. This cult of the emperor reached even levels of deification, even calling him... Lord and Savior. This, of course, brought the Christian community into direct conflict with the pagan populace of Philippi and the Roman Empire itself. Gordon D. Fee comments, quote, which, the cult of the empire, is precisely the place where believers in Christ could no longer join as citizens of Rome and Philippi. Their allegiance was to another Kyrgios, Jesus Christ, before whom every knee would someday bow and every tongue confess, including the citizens of Philippi who were causing their suffering, and the emperor himself. The Christian community held dual citizenship as Roman citizens and the kingdom of God. But the Philippian Christians were very clear as to where their singular loyalty belonged. So, how did the Philippians respond to this conflict? Did they form a political action committee? Did they hold rallies? for Christian candidates for the Roman Senate? Did they foster conspiracy theories in hope of discrediting the authority of the governor and the emperor? Did they resort to violence to achieve their political goals? No, none of these. They instead followed the example of their apostle Paul in suffering for the gospel. And above all, within the community, the example of their only Lord and Savior, and true God, Jesus Christ. But they not only submitted to necessary suffering, they also consciously chose to display the superiority of their citizenship in the kingdom of heaven by the conduct of their daily lives. Paul tells these suffering believers in Philippi to live out the life of the future kingdom in the present and thus prove themselves, quote, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Philippians two fifteen. His first exhortation, and the letter to the Philippians, is found at one twenty-seven thirty, chapter one, verse twenty-seven through thirty. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side. For the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer His for his sake engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Philippians one twenty-seven through 27-30 The Christian response to persecution is not political action or violence, but to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, meaning to let our conduct reveal the superiority of life under the control of Jesus Christ as Supreme Lord and only Savior, as opposed to Caesar. But acting out in fear and violence is a sign one is on the path to destruction. Even if you do it in the name of Jesus, it is a sure sign that you are on a path to destruction and not the kingdom of God. Far better to suffer for Christ and his kingdom than participate in worldly acts of lies and violent insurgency against others. The second exhortation we find in the letter to the Philippians is that, chapter 3, verses 17 through chapter 4, verse 1. Quote, Brothers, join in imitating me, and keeping your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many, of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame, with minds set on earthly things. my beloved. Philippians three seventeen, 17 to chapter 4, verse 1 Once again, the response to opposition and threat is, th- is to display the superiority of life under Jesus Christ as Supreme Lord and only Savior by living out the values and priorities of the future kingdom in the present by the power of the Spirit and not the power of the state. Christian conduct is to stand in contrast, not ape those who set their minds on earthly things. We have a Savior, and it is not any politician. We have a Lord, and it is not any man or woman who would command our loyalty and compliance to their worldly agenda. We have no beloved leader, We have but one leader, one Lord, and one Savior, Jesus Christ, and it is His kingdom to which we belong foremost and above all others. Our daily conduct, then, should be determined not by the the political whims of the nation, but by the power of the Spirit, the Spirit of the coming age, the indwelling Holy Spirit. The Christian narrative is not that of of national pride and patriotism, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit as we live as pilgrims and strangers in the world. Let me speak to you now about some of the contemporary Caesars because this information about Philippi would only be interesting history if it has no application to today. But, oh, it does. So this lesson in Philippians is all but lost upon today's Christian mind. By adopting the terminology and symbols of Christianity, power-hungry men and women within the political spectrum have gained the support of unwitting Christians. These leaders promised that America can once again be the Christian nation it never was and frightened people buy into the lie. For instance, recently the conservative autocrat and Prime Minister of Hungary, Viktor Orban, spoke at the Conservative Political Action Committee conference in Texas. His speech was peppered with Christian references and terms. Orban, advocating for a, quote, "...Christian democracy," skillfully assured conservatives that the power of the state can be employed to effectively enforce Christian values upon the larger populace. And the crowd roared with applause and approval. Many who attend a CPAC event are professing Christians who long to see Donald Trump return to power in order to create such an autocracy in in America. Popular Fox News host Tucker Carlson even said Orban was someone the West could learn from. Now, none of this should surprise anyone who witnessed the violent insurgency upon the Capitol on January 6, 2021. Many of those in the crowd that day chanting, Hang Mike pants! stood with those carrying Bibles or crosses, and one person a banner proclaiming, Jesus, I trust in you. One woman wore a t shirt boasting, Jesus is my Lord, and Trump is my President. Such a garment would bewilder a first century Christian. Jesus is my Lord, and Caesar is my Emperor? I don't think so. Still, the use of violence to achieve so-called Christian objectives is as old as European Christendom. It's nothing new. After all, it was after a supposed vision in which Constantine was instructed by a heavenly voice to conquer his political and military opponents, using a Christian symbol painted on the shields of his soldiers. It was the Christian God, said Constantine, that helped him defeat an opposing army and consolidate his grip on Rome. What followed in 313 A.D. thereafter was the formation of a Holy Roman Empire with Constantine at its head, a political and military monster with which the Church became allied. Have we learned nothing? Even in the recent funeral of Queen Elizabeth II of England, as the funeral, public funeral was wrapping up. One of the speakers proclaimed, "Charles the or Charles the excuse me," as their sovereign lord. Quote, end quote. The spirit of Constantine continues, and is that being played out in America? Absolutely. It is the mind in the heart of the fallen man to want to elevate a king it is the fallen depraved nature of man to want to elevate a political and or religious figure so let's look at then the role that the christian plays in the government or with the government As already stated, one cause for the increase in Christian nationalism is a lack of a genuine Christian narrative. In fact, the lack of teaching may be the primary cause. Nowhere does the New Testament teach that Christians are to despise the government, mistrust the government, or seek to overthrow the government. There isn't even a command that secular rulers must hold Christian values nor a command that the use of violence and division to resist those do not is acceptable. It ought not go unstated that the New Testament authors wrote during the times of great persecution by the Roman emperors, especially Nero, who used Christians as human torches to light his outside festivities. Even in the midst of such horrific persecution, Nothing is said in the New Testament about organizing to oppose secular authorities. Any authority which is opposed to that which stems from false teachers, not against Caesar, authority is designed to, especially the authority of the Word of God, which is truly the only authority that exists, is to stem false teaching, to bring discernment between darkness and light, good and evil, false and true, not to oppose the government. Indeed, Peter, writing to Christians under persecution, commands this, quote, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. End quote. First Peter two, thirteen through seventeen. And Paul commands in Romans: Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted. By God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to con- good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of those who are in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. End quote. Romans 13, 1 through 7. And to Timothy, the same Apostle Paul writes, quote, First of all, then, I urge that great uh, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings, and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. 1 Timothy 2, 1-4 Christians are to actively intercede on behalf of those in authority, with thanksgiving. This is the active role of the Christian community and government, so that, quote, we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way, end quote. Far from commending the act of a subsession against government among Christians, the only biblical reference to those who despise government is in the negative. Speaking of the judgment to come upon the character of false teachers, Peter writes, Especially those who indulge the flesh in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Second Peter 2.10 At that last phrase, the King James Version translates, and despise government. To despise government was one of the characteristics of the false teachers of that day. The popular anti government mentality among Christians today may sell well among politically conservative groups, but it is not biblical and therefore does not bring honor to Christ in his kingdom. Well, we're going to pause there, and in the next lesson, I will look further into the heresy of Christian nationalism and give you several points to help equip you to be able to identify it and deal with it, especially if you are any kind of leadership capacity within your church This is a serious problem right now. It's a serious threat to the gospel. And if those who are in leadership do not recognize that and continue to try to ignore it, it will come back to haunt them. It will come back to bite them in serious damage to the church and to the cause of Christ in the world.